Okay, you guys ready? Acts chapter 18. So today, we're going to briefly look at the end of Acts chapter 18 because it introduces to us a, a person uh, that's mentioned again in the scripture, a man by the name of Apollos. And so we're going to look briefly at Apollos and how he came into Paul's story. And then we're going to take a look at the encounter that the Apostle Paul had with these disciples that I was just talking to the kids about. These disciples that Paul met in Ephesus. So remember, Paul made this journey around. He went to Corinth and he sailed across the sea, went to Caesarea, went down to Jerusalem. And then from there, he goes back up and eventually he ends up in Ephesus. He goes to Antioch and then he starts retracing his steps talking to all the churches he had planted, and then ends up over in Ephesus. And this is where chapter 19 is going to pick up. But let's begin first in chapter 18, verses 24 through 28. I want to look at these last five verses of Acts chapter 18. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word today, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, that, that you would open our hearts and open our minds Lord, it's not enough for us to just say we're disciples of Jesus. It's not enough for us to just know about Jesus. If we are truly disciples of Jesus, if Jesus has truly saved us and transformed us, then our lives have to look like the life of Jesus. That means in the way we talk, in the way we act, in the way we interact with other people, Lord, our lives should be consistent with the Jesus we see in Scripture. And above everything, the Jesus we see in Scripture was submitted to the will of God. So, Father, help us as your people be submitted to the will of God as you have revealed it to us through the Word of God. We ask, God, that you would do this that you would be glorified in us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 28, I mean 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He spoke... And taught accurately the things of the Lord, <clears throat> though he knew only the baptism of John. You see a similarity here between these disciples that Paul will encounter when we get to verse, or when we get to chapter 19. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had, who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scripture that Jesus is the Christ. <clears throat> so here in Acts chapter 18, at the end of the chapter, these last five verses, we're introduced to this man by the name of Apollos. Apollos, obviously, is a Greek name. 
now, whether Apollos was a Hellenist, which means was a Jew who was immersed in the Greek culture, spoke Greek, lived according to the Greeks, but, but was Jewish in his faith, we don't know, but we know that he was uh, a disciple of John, which would indicate that's probably exactly what he was. Apollos is a Greek name. So he was from Alexandria, which was uh, named after Alexander the Great. It was a city in Egypt. Um, and at the time that Apollos came from Alexandria to, to Ephesus, in that time period, we know that there was not an established church in Alexandria. But we know that Apollos was a disciple of, uh, or he identified as a disciple of John. And so, Apollos, it says here from the scripture that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So, Apollos goes to Ephesus, and when he is at Ephesus, he's in the synagogue, as Jews would do, so this was their place of worship, and it just so happened, you guys believe that it just so happened, what a coincidence, what an accident that Aquila and Priscilla were also in Ephesus, that Paul had also come to Ephesus. Now remember, Paul left Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, and he went on down to Caesarea because he was going to Jerusalem. So while Paul left Ephesus to go ultimately to Jerusalem, Aquila and Priscilla are there in Ephesus. They remained. And while Paul is coming down, Apollos, they don't know each other yet, is going up, and he goes to Ephesus. And this is the encounter that's being recorded in these five verses, these last five verses of Acts chapter 18. And so it tells us a little bit about Apollos. It says that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and that he was fervent in his faith and in his conviction and he spoke and he taught accurately the things of the Lord. So he was well versed in the scripture and he could communicate accurately the word of God, the doctrine of God that he learned from the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, because at this time there wasn't a New Testament as we knew it. So this is about 55 AD. More than likely, almost certainly, at least one, if not a couple of the gospels were written. They, they do have fragments of the book of Mark that date all the way back to about 40 AD, they estimate. So it's very possible that there was a gospel, and we do know that Paul is writing letters to the churches, but there has not been a book like we call the Bible put together. So what the Jews had, what Apollos had, was the Old Testament scriptures. And so this is how, this is what he taught. And it says that he knew and he taught the things of the Lord accurately. In other words, his teachings were consistent with the teachings of John the Baptist because that's who he considered himself a disciple of, meaning that he had heard of the coming Messiah because John spoke of the coming Messiah and even of Jesus by name. Beyond that, we don't know much about Apollos. But we do know that Aquila and Priscilla are in the synagogue at the same time that Apollos is teaching 
and they're listening to Apollos, and they recognize that he knows the things of God and is able to communicate them accurately. And though he only knew John's baptism, he was explaining the word of the Lord and the ways of the Lord in an accurate way. And the Bible says that as Aquila and Priscilla listened to him after the synagogue service was over, they took Apollos aside. Actually, what that really means is that they didn't just take him aside and have a conversation, you know, around the corner of the synagogue. They actually took him into their home. They took him and they began to give him more detail about the things he was talking about because he did not have the full picture. He wasn't completely accurate. In other words, it didn't mean that he was saying wrong things. He just didn't know all things about Jesus and the one that John had spoke of, the coming one. Remember, John the Baptist was executed before Jesus went to the cross. So Aquila and Priscilla um, heard him teaching the things of the Lord and, and they took him aside and they taught him the gospel that they had received from the apostle Paul. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla met Paul in Corinth. And the Bible says, we just read this in the preceding uh, verses up in the, earlier in the chapter, that Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth and he's there with Aquila and Priscilla because they were all tent makers, and they were doing their trade together to earn a living. But Paul, remember, his occupation wasn't tent maker, wasn't leather maker. His occupation was disciple maker. He was a gospel preacher. But he spent that time, and no doubt, versed Aquila and Priscilla in the gospel of Christ. Now, Aquila and Priscilla are in Ephesus. They hear Apollos giving an accurate teaching on the word of the Lord, but they, they realize that Apollos doesn't know the fullness of the gospel because he does not know the fullness of who Christ is and the one that John proclaimed. And so they take him aside and they explain the way of God more accurately. Specifically, they give him the gospel of Christ. Aquila and Priscilla taught Apollos the gospel and they received that they received from Paul and Aquila, uh, Apollos takes that and he begins to then teach and preach the gospel of Christ in the synagogue. And so it says that Apollos eventually went from Ephesus and he crossed the Aegean Sea and went to Achaia, the Greek peninsula. He ended up in Corinth. And when you read... Uh, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, Apollos is mentioned there because Apollos made disciples there. Because remember in the letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, some of you say you're of Paul, you're of Apollos. And Paul said, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you because you're not of me, you're not of Apollos, you're of Jesus Christ because that's what your baptism means. Your baptism doesn't identify you with the, the teacher you follow. The baptism identifies you with the Lord and Savior you're to follow. It doesn't matter who baptized you. What matters is who you're baptized into. And so uh, Apollos eventually crosses over 
he ends up in Corinth, and the scripture says that he greatly helped those who had believed on the Lord Jesus through grace, and he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scripture that Jesus is the Christ. So Apollos was not afraid to stand up in the synagogue and refute the Jews who opposed Christ and the gospel of Christ. So this is Apollos that is now introduced to us here in the book of Acts. Now, that brings us to the end of chapter 18. It lays the, the, the groundwork for Paul's ministry uh, that will be revealed in greater measure through the, his letter to the Corinthian church. And we see that Apollos played an important part in helping the churches and in making disciples and in strengthening the disciples. But we also see that Apollos, as well-meaning as he was at the beginning when Aquila and Priscilla meet him, though he taught the word and the way of God accurately, he did not fully understand the gospel. And they helped him in that, which is important. Which also leads into Acts chapter 19. And let's look at the first seven verses here. And let's read now while Apollos is being mentored by Aquila and Priscilla. And he's learning the gospel. And he goes to Corinth. Paul comes to Ephesus. So Apollos leads and, leaves and goes to Corinth. Paul is now coming up to Ephesus. Chapter 19 beginning in verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. So we switch from um, Apollos, who's now in Corinth, to Paul, who's now made his way from Antioch and over to Ephesus. Now remember, when Paul sailed from Corinth and he goes across the Aegean Sea, he lands at Ephesus. And the Bible says he goes to the synagogue and he teaches them, he delivers the gospel to them in the synagogue, and the people, the Jews in the synagogue, asked Paul to stay with them longer. And Paul said, I can't stay. I've got to get to Jerusalem and keep the feast. But I will come back to you, God willing. Well, it was the will of God. And so Paul has come back to them just like he promised. And so Paul now has come to Ephesus. And as he gets to Ephesus, it says that he found he found some disciples now it doesn't tell us anything really more at this point it just says he found some disciples 
So the plain reading seems to indicate that these were disciples of Jesus or disciples who believed in Jesus or disciples who, who in some form or fashion acknowledged Jesus. But they were lacking something in their doctrine and belief. These disciples sound as though they could have held similar beliefs to those of Apollos. Now, what did it tell us of Apollos? He had received the baptism of John. It doesn't tell us that Apollos was baptized into Christ, but I think it's a safe assumption that Aquila and Priscilla would have made sure that Apollos was baptized into Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Jesus commanded. Even though it doesn't say that, the only reason Apollos would not have been baptized into Jesus is if he had already been baptized into Jesus. If that were the case, though, it it seems like that would have shown up in his doctrine as he's teaching, and that seemed to be lacking. So it sounds like it's very possible that these disciples that Paul encounters in Ephesus could have been theologically kind of in the same place Apollos was. And Paul realized that there was something that was not quite right about their doctrine and their beliefs. But it seems to be that in calling them disciples, they somehow identified with Jesus. So we can only know what the scripture reveals. The rest really is conjecture. And this is an important lesson for us. We should always trust the amount of information the Scripture gives us. Sometimes we want more, right? But we need to trust that God gives to us what we need when we need it. But one of the things that's important for us to do is you learn how to read and study the Scripture. And and it's not a quick process. It's like our kids learning to talk. I mean, how long does it take for our babies to be able to formulate the English language effectively? You say, well, it doesn't take that long. It it takes a little while. Would you say it takes at least a year? Maybe more than a year? Yeah. And what, what are those children, let's just say, In two years, what are those children exposed to every day? How often are children exposed to the English language? Let's just take the children in in this room today. How often are the children, the little children, not, not, not only the big children, but the little children, how often are the little children in this room, the ones who can speak the English language and the ones who are still learning to speak the English language, how often are they exposed to the English language every day? Yeah. I mean, it's fair to say they're exposed to it every day. Are they exposed to it for 10 minutes a day? No. They're exposed to it every waking hour. They hear the English language. They encounter the English language in some form or fashion every waking hour. Reading it, hearing it, speaking, hearing their parents speak it, hearing their siblings speak it. So when we talk about learning the Scripture and studying the Scripture and understanding the Scripture, we want that to be something that happens 
like that. We want to be able to just, you know, like spend five minutes reading our devotional from our devotional book, you know, that's, that takes about five minutes. We read a scripture, then we read the little devotion that goes with it. We want to be able to do that and then think that we can fully understand God. That would be like saying if you exposed a child to the English language five minutes, five days a week, how long would it take them to learn to speak English if a child was only exposed to the English language, say, 10 or 15 minutes a day, five, let's say seven days a week? You think it would take longer than two years? Oh, yeah, it would. It would take a lot longer. And so this is the importance of washing our minds with the Word of God. This is the importance of taking in the Word of God as much as we can. Because we believe all kinds of things that we think are consistent with God, and we have no clue, really, because we've not immersed ourselves in the Word of God. We've not learned the language of the Bible, and we've not learned the God of the Bible, and you can't do that five minutes a day. You can't do that ten minutes a day. I submit you can't even do that uh, for an hour a day. It, it takes a process of time. What I'm saying is we need to be people who are purposeful and patient as we diligently and consistently read and study and pray the Word. And this is, why we, this is why we remind you every week to read your Bible challenge, to read the Scripture. And I always tell people, I told at least two people this yesterday, don't worry about it because people always tell me, well, I, I don't comprehend. Don't worry about what you don't comprehend. Just get the Word in you. The, what's most important about reading the Bible, studying the Bible, is what the Bible's putting in you, not necessarily what you're getting out of it. And if you keep putting the Bible in you, before you know it, you're going to be getting things out of it that you didn't even know you could. And the importance is you keep hiding the word in your heart. Keep washing your mind with that word. So, Paul encounters these disciples and something doesn't quite seem right. And so, he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we've not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. This is verse 2. So it seems from Paul's question that he has a reason to believe that these disciples expressed faith in Jesus or at least knowledge of him, but there was something that was lacking. Thus the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And their answer was, we don't even know if there is a Holy Spirit. Or, as some translations, we don't even know if the Holy Spirit has been given. So either they didn't know there was a Holy Spirit, which is probably unlikely if they're disciples of John, because John very clearly pointed to the Holy Spirit. What's more likely is they did not know if the Holy Spirit had been given yet. And because these are called disciples, some people believe that Paul is, is not talking about the ordinary grace of God. What do I mean by the ordinary grace of God? If you're born again today, you have the Holy Spirit. You can't be born again and not have the Holy Spirit. If you're saved, if Jesus has saved you and you are his child, you are his child and you are saved because you have the Holy Spirit. And so, some people are asking, uh, believe that Paul's asking not just about 
the grace of God given to us when he gives us the Holy Spirit at salvation, but he's asking them about the, the grace of God through the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit that is distributed to believers as the Spirit wills. I believe Paul is referencing the Holy Spirit in terms of our salvation, in terms of the Spirit that seals us and saves us when we are born again and made new creations by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe Paul, in asking this question, is trying to locate where these disciples are and if they are truly disciples of Jesus and what they know about Jesus. John spoke of the Holy Spirit in his ministry. He proclaimed to the people of Israel, the one coming after him, who had baptized them, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. Listen to John's words recorded for us in Matthew 3.11. John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So if these were disciples of John, they would have heard of the Holy Spirit and they would have heard of the one coming after him. So this discourse between Paul and these disciples seems to indicate that these men had heard of Christ as John had pointed men to Jesus. It also appears that they had not heard the fullness of the gospel of Christ and all that had transpired after John's death. Death, John the Baptist was executed by Herod. Remember the story? I won't go into it, but he was. And Jesus uh, came to see him as John was imprisoned, and shortly after that, John was executed. So these disciples seemed to know of Jesus so that they're referred to as disciples or followers, but their discipleship was lacking. Their faith was incomplete. Even though they had been pointed to Jesus, it seems they had never been taught beyond the doctrines of John the Baptist. Thus we see the difference and the importance of not simply knowing of Jesus, but knowing him in an experiential way. This is the difference between having a head knowledge of Jesus and not having a heart knowledge of him. It's not an either or. We need to have both. God gave us a brain for a reason and we need to use it. And we need to fill our minds with the truth of God and the word of God. But you can fill your mind with the word of God all day long. And if your heart has not been changed, you have a bunch of knowledge that's not going to do anything but puff you up. So that knowledge of Jesus that's in our head, that needs to come from a transformed heart of faith that only God can give us. I can't give you a transformed heart. You can't give yourself a transformed heart. In other words, you can't save yourself and no preacher, no pastor, no priest, no man can save you. Only Jesus can save you. But when Jesus saves you and your heart is changed, it is from that changed heart that your mind needs to be renewed to the truth. And that doesn't happen by accident. That happens as you purposefully, like a farmer who plants seed purposefully in a field. That happens as you purposefully plant or pour the water of his word over your mind and hide that word in your heart. 
And so Paul is trying to locate these believers here and find out exactly what they knew and who they belonged to. Jesus must be more than a knowledge we possess or a name we align ourselves with. Jesus must be the one who possesses us. And his name must be the name that we give our allegiance to above anyone or anything else. It is baptism that signifies this for the believer. And so thus Paul asked them the question, into what then were you baptized? This is an important question. You notice he didn't ask them, so what do you guys believe? He says, into what then were you baptized? Because what they were baptized into is going to signify what they believe. Do you get that? We very seldom ask people, what were you baptized into? We ask people, what do you believe? Paul doesn't ask them what they believe. He asks them what they were baptized into to find out what they believe. Because what you're baptized into is supposed to signify what you believe. It's supposed to measure, it's supposed to indicate how you live your life and how you walk out your professed faith in Jesus. And so they said, into John's baptism. That's the baptism we received, John's baptism. Now, whether John baptized them or whether disciples of John baptized them, they weren't baptized into Jesus. They were recipients of John's baptism. When we're baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We are, by the Spirit, sealed and immersed into Jesus, and Christ becomes our identity. Paul asked them, into what then were you baptized? He's trying to find out who they identify with. And they said, John. We identify with John. And that is what Paul was looking for. That's what he was trying to find out. Who do you identify with? Now, nothing wrong with John's lifestyle and John's uh, preaching and teaching of the Scripture. But remember, John was pointing men to Jesus. They had to move beyond the baptism of John into what John was pointing all men to. And this is what Paul is trying to find out. Into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism. And that indicated to Paul that they had been baptized into the baptism of repentance administered by John, but they had not been specifically baptized into Christ as their identity as new creations as men who had received new hearts and literally new identities through Jesus Christ. Verse 4, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. They had been baptized with John's baptism, but not into Jesus Christ in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Paul was explaining that John's teaching and his baptism of repentance was pointing people to Jesus. And though John did not live to see it, it is Christ who was crucified, buried, and raised for our redemption. Paul explains that John John's was a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him 
who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're disciples of John, then you need to be aligned with Jesus. You need to be following Jesus. You need to identify with Jesus. And when they heard this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. The plain reading of this is that when these disciples Paul is speaking with heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. There are some commentators who reject that. There are some commentators who believe that they, the pronoun they, is not referring to those disciples that Paul is with, but is referring to those Israelites who heard John preach and they were baptized into Christ Jesus. I don't have time to go into this, but the reason this is even a question and the reason I even pose this is because, because of the question of rebaptism. And so this is why some commentators say, well, these, these guys had to have already been baptized into Jesus if they were disciples and if they received John's baptism because John pointed people to Jesus, then they were baptized into Christ. Because there would not be a rebaptism. I think if from the plain reading of this text, it is the disciples Paul is talking to in Ephesus that were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so the question of rebaptism is a question that Christians struggle with. I have people not infrequently ask me to get baptized again. And I always ask, or, or you know, some churches say if you, if you become a member of our church, you've got to get baptized in our church or in our denomination. We don't have a denomination. We're an independent Bible-believing church, so we're not affiliated. But even some independent Bible-believing churches might say, you know, depending on how or when or where you were baptized, you, you need to get rebaptized. Even if you were baptized in the name of Jesus, baptized into Jesus. And I actually reject that. The question is whether John's baptism was Christian baptism. Believe it or not, there's some people who believe, there's some commentators who believe John's baptism actually was Christian baptism. But I believe that John's baptism was distinctly different from what we call Christian baptism. I believe on the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches his message and it says 3,000 were added to the church, I think it would be unreasonable to assume that none of those 3,000 had heard the preaching of John or had been disciples of John or even been baptized by John, perhaps. And what does Peter say when they say, what must we do to be saved? Be baptized in the name of Jesus and be saved. In other words, identify with Jesus. And this is what baptism does. There were considerate, they were considered disciples by Paul and Luke and referred to as such, but they had an incomplete understanding of Jesus and the gospel as indicated by Paul's question about their baptism. 
And if they were disciples of Jesus, Paul knew they would have been baptized into Christ. They would have knowledge of the Holy Spirit since they would have been baptized in his name as part of the triune God. Because what did Jesus tell us to do? What did Jesus command us to do? Go make disciples, baptizing them how? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Had they received what we call Christian baptism, they would have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not into John, but into Jesus. And so the answer to the question indicated to Paul that these guys hadn't been baptized into Christ yet. And when they heard that that's exactly what Paul's or John's ministry was about, pointing men to Jesus, that they would follow Jesus, when they heard that, they said, let's get baptized. And they were baptized into Christ Jesus. John's baptism was not a baptism into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When John was baptizing, Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, and John did not get to see those glorious things before his execution. These men may have looked for or may have looked to the coming one, John proclaimed, but they had never been baptized into the risen and ascended Christ. It seems likely from Paul's reaction to them, he sensed that they had never come to hear or know the fullness of the gospel of Christ, for there were things that were obviously lacking in their knowledge, their knowledge of the Holy Spirit. So this brings us to the question of believers being rebaptized, and I think it's important that we address this very briefly. I actually had a person leave the church years ago upset with me because I would not baptize them again. I actually had baptized them years earlier. And this person wanted to get rebaptized as an expression of thanksgiving to God. They were very genuine. They were very zealous for the Lord and they felt it very important for them personally to get rebaptized. And I would not rebaptize them. Because baptism is not a gesture of we do as thanksgiving to God for all that God has done for us. I explained that getting baptized again was not necessary in order to give thanks to God. You do realize that, right? Our baptism represents something that we cannot do over again. Our baptism represents our death, our burial, and our resurrection with Christ. And that's not something we do again. You don't get born again again. Just like you don't crucify Jesus again, you don't crucify yourself again in that way. Paul said, I die daily. I take up my cross daily. But we understand that once we have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, I don't go through the process of getting crucified, buried, and resurrected over again every time I make a mistake. I can recommit my life to the Lord, but I can't go back to the cross and do over again. And that's what baptism represents. So we don't rebaptize people that have been properly baptized into Jesus Christ in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not by being baptized again that we give thanks. It is continually offering the sacrifice of praise, giving thanks to his name. Hebrews 3.15, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Our very life, our lifestyle should be one of giving thanks to his name. 
Paul baptized these disciples again because they had never been baptized into Jesus to begin with. They had never been baptized in the name of the triune God. They didn't even know the third person of that triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit. And verse 6 says, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. More than likely, it was not Paul, but his disciples who baptized them. And once they were baptized, as was customary after their baptism, Paul would have laid hands on them to administer the blessing. And it was at that point that they spoke with tongues and prophesied. These Jews had a similar experience as those Jews in the upper room on that great day of Pentecost following the resurrection of the Lord. Their identification with Jesus was not in their baptism. It was in their expression of faith in Christ. Baptism does not save us. Jesus saves us. Jesus, our Savior, does command us to be baptized. He does command us to identify with him in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. His death means we're, we're no more. It's not I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. Our burial is that we put the old man away. We put the dead man away. We put the old away and we live now in the new. That's our identity with his resurrection. If you're still living the old life, pulling those things from your past back that should be crucified and put away and you are done with them, then you're in sin and disobedience to God. Because this is what our baptism represents. And we move forward in life in obedience to God. Not looking back, but looking ahead. It is our baptism that signifies our new life with Christ. And our baptism is to signify how we are to walk and how we are to live. It's like we teach our children. We are to live consistent with our baptism. These disciples not only had an incomplete understanding of Christ in the gospel, they had never been baptized. We can know that we are filled and empowered by the Spirit, not by the manifestation of our gifts, but by the manifestation of His fruit. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. God gives the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit as He wills. I believe in the gifts. I believe God still employs gifts today. But it's not our gifts that are the measure of our spiritualness or our spiritual uh, depth or our spiritual life or any of that. It is the manifestation of the Spirit of God through the, through the fruit of the Spirit that is the true measure of our faith and the true measure of our life in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is the manifestation of the Spirit that we are to walk in and overflow with at all times. God gives gifts as he wills. The Spirit distributes as he wills. But we are to walk in and overflow with the fruit all the time. We are not to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control 
on occasionally. That's supposed to be the character of our life. Now, I can't speak for you, but I very often fail. And I have to, as the kids pointed out, I have to repent and ask God to forgive me. But that should be the measure of our life always. That should be the desire of our life always, that we manifest the fruit of the Spirit because it is the fruit of the Spirit that is the true measure of our relationship with God and and whether we are surrendered to the Lord or not. It's the fruit, not the gifts, that are the true mark of a spirit-filled life. And the life, that life, is given to us in Jesus. And for that, we should be truly thankful. So we don't get baptized again to express our thankfulness. We come to the table every week to express our thankfulness. The word Eucharist is a word that means thanksgiving. This literally is the table of thanksgiving. And unfortunately, there was a time in the history of this church where we had communion maybe once or twice a year. And there was probably a reason why that person could not understand and maybe saw baptism as a reason to express thankfulness to God. And this is exactly why we come to the table every week Because every week, not just every week, but every day, we should be thankful for our salvation that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. And this table reminds us every week how we receive that that, that salvation and why we are to be thankful for that salvation. And it is through the fruit of our lips that we should be expressing that thanksgiving. That's the sacrifice of praise that God desires. Your baptism means something. Your baptism should define how you live your life, how you walk out your faith. Don't minimize your baptism. It doesn't save you, but it is absolutely significant for your life. It's not the experience. These babies we baptize aren't going to remember as infants the day they got baptized. That's not the point. People like to, we love experience, right? It's not the experience. It's the significance of the event. It's what that event means. I know when I got baptized, but it wasn't the event that I remember. I can barely remember when I got baptized, but I know absolutely what my baptism signifies and represents. And that is what we should be reminded of. That is what we should be taught. That is what we should live out every day of our lives. And if we have been baptized into Jesus Christ, then our life must begin to conform and look like that of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's come to the table. We will take the elements together. You're all welcome to come. If you identify yourself as a part of the body of Christ, And we'll uh, pray together and eat and drink together. In your charge today, I want you to realize that we can call ourselves disciples. We can identify with Jesus in name. But it is our life and our lifestyle, empowered by the Spirit and the grace of God, that is the true mark of our discipleship. 
Our baptism marks something in our life. It's not about how young we are or how old we are. It is about what our baptism marks and how we walk that out in our life. Our baptism marks our identification with the cross of Christ and all that signifies from his death and burial to his resurrection and ascension. And if we are disciples of Jesus, then we are to live true to our baptism. If you count yourself a disciple of Jesus and have not been baptized into Christ, then do not delay obeying his command, for baptism is his command. It is not the experience of our baptism that makes the difference. It is the significance of our baptism. It is our identification with Jesus and our conforming to his life. That is the difference. Amen.